You're listening to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep our history alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. At that time, uh, they were one of the few stations that still had the big old hair compressors and and the big bellows that, that blow out. I think still the sound that you hear on Fisherman's broadcast is, is the actual arm from Twillingate because uh, it's got the same features. It's supposed to come on automatically in a, in a perfect world at two miles. If, uh, if the fog comes in at two, at two miles visibility, they have a machine there called a videograph that's shooting a strobe light out continuously through this little window next to your fog horn. If it bounces back, that means there's fog or snow or something like that. If it don't bounce back, it's a clear day. In uh, in the perfect world, it would, the fog would move in at two miles and be a 30-second delay. If it still stills there in 30 seconds time, now a flock of seagulls or something, it would start up the compressors and, and blow, right? But uh, depending on the weather conditions, if it's freezing rain, the lightkeeper got to go out and scrape the ice off the window so the videograph records properly and, and all that, so it, you know, it's supposed to work ideal, ideally under ideal conditions, I guess, whatever, but uh, a lot of times the lightkeeper still got to do the hands-on. That was Barry Porter talking about foghorns. We'll come back in a little bit and hear more of Barry Porter's stories of working in the lighthouse. This week, we're all about lighthouses here on Living Heritage. So sit back, have a cup of tea, and listen to some great stories about lighthouse keeping then and now. For now, we're going to go back a little bit further in time. This is an interview that was done with Jack Roberts, who was the lighthouse keeper at the Long Point Lighthouse in Twillingate. The recording was made in April of 1975. At that point, Jack Roberts was a third-generation lighthouse keeper. His grandfather was the first lighthouse keeper for the community, and the family spent around 92 years in total looking after the lighthouse. Here he is, talking about his family connection and the role of lightkeepers. I was born there, yeah. My grandfather was the first lightkeeper there in 1876, started 1876. He was in charge there for 17 years, I believe. Then my father took over, charged the place. He was in charge for 35 years, and I took over from him in 1927 until 1969. Someone brought along the uh, contract for that the building of that place the other day, built in 1875 it was, and the contract call, uh, tender was $5,700. It's amazing comparing with the prices of today, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I could hardly believe that. I suppose they completed it in 1975 and they put it in operation in 1976. My grandfather was the first lightkeeper there. His assistant was James Preston. He was there 37 years, James Preston, the first assistant. The place had uh, four principal keepers in uh, just about 100 years and eight assistants, I believe. 100 years next year in operation. 
There's a shoal lying off here about two and three quarter miles. Old Harry, it's called. Very dangerous spot. I think that would be the main reason they mm. put the lighters there on the horn. Except for Old Harry, there are no shoals along there, you see. Just the bare headlands, you know. Mm -hmm. My father, I remember his pay was $46 a month. Um, that was just before he retired, later after, after he retired, before he retired, rather. I think it was 67 I started with, $67 a month. Increased a little bit afterwards when they put the radio beacon there in 1935. And gradually, after Confederation, the wages stepped up a bit, you know, gradually and became more profitable. Mm -hmm. But it's a rather isolated life, dismal, like, you know, lonely, and it's a lonely place. Not so bad in the summertime. Visitors mm -hmm. came in the summertime. In the wintertime, the sealers would be out around there, you know, looking out. Not too many visitors in the wintertime from, uh, say, October on till May, I guess, you know, pretty much mm -hmm. isolated. It was always the same, even in my father's day. The um, officially uh, sealers um, depended pretty much on the lightkeepers to keep an eye out for them and either ice the flag or blow the horn if the ice started to shift when they were offshore a ways, you know. And in fact, uh, there's no doubt about it, what lots of people's lives were saved in my father's day because of their watchfulness and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And in my day and at present, the same thing. The uh, fishermen depend upon the light keepers pretty much to let them know that is when they're walking on the ice, mainly, you see, when they're walking. Mm -hmm. And the lake makes along the shore, due to southerly wind, would throw the ice off, and men have no boat. And the, the usual thing was to ice the flag or blow the horn, both probably. As a warning. That, that would alert them, you see, and then they would make for land. In lots and lots of cases, we've had to get a boat out of the sleepy cove down there and go out and ferry them across these lakes and that sort of thing. Well, that was interesting, and we felt that it was our duty, like, although it wasn't as far as the department was concerned, but we felt it was our duty to do that sort of thing and did it willingly. Many is the occasion that we... Uh, both the light keepers, assistants, and principal keepers uh, met the light keepers with hot tea and lunches of various kinds, you know, numerous times, in fact, when they're coming in late and tired and that sort of thing. And, and they really appreciated that sort of thing, you know, and really had confidence in the light keeper, too. I saw Patrick Seals on one occasion, oh, probably 30 years ago, stretching from Bacaleo nine miles to the southeast stretched to the northwest as far as I could see. Oh, it must have been 20 miles long. I was estimating anyway at least 250,000 seals. That was bedlamers in the spring of the year, you see, uh, shedding their coats. See. Well, I've seen numerous uh, patches of seals, thousands upon thousands. And the, uh, usually the conditions were that it was practically impossible to reach them. For some reason, uh, they come in with the Heavy uh, sea, you know, and the ice broken up and all that sort of thing, and practically almost impossible conditions for the men to reach them. So many cases like that. And there were cases when the men could reach them, you see, and did very well. But in those days, the stations were open all year round. Uh, Long Point Station used to be open all year round. Mm -hmm. But Long Point out here is still in operation all winter long. 
the only, uh, well, Sergeant Scofield entrance to Bartlett is open all. It's the only two levees in operation all winter long now, except until you get to Cape Bonavista, they're open all winter. Mm -hmm. I Sorry. suppose eventually they will be all on-man stations, you know, that's what it looks like now. With their long history in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's perhaps not surprising that Jack Roberts was not the only Newfoundlander to be born out at the lighthouse. This is another interview, an interview with Teresa Colburn. It was conducted in 1982 by broadcaster Hiram Silk, and she was 95 years old at the time of the recording. She was born at the lighthouse at Cape Bonavista. You were born at Bonavista. Bonavista, yes. Cape Bonavista. Cape Bonavista. You were born yeah. in the lighthouse. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, your father and your grandfather were lighthouse keepers. Yes. So that's going back to about 18, oh, 1843. Yeah, before my time. <laughs> yes, that lighthouse uh, began, I think, in 1843, was yeah. constructed. Well, he, he was the first to go there in the lighthouse. My grandfather was. Now, your grandfather came out from Ireland. Yes. What was yes. his name, Mrs. Coburn? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah White. Yes. How did he get that job as a lighthouse keeper? I don't like to say. <laughs> May that be correct? No, but what well, version you would have? He was connected or knew um, the governor that came out one time mm -hmm. to Newfoundland. And it was through him that he got the lighthouse. I think you told me earlier he was a chauffeur or something. For something. Him. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. I used to hear my older sisters talking. But I, you know, it was something like that. I was and so the governor young. promised him a job. Something like that, yes. And he got it. And he got it, you know. And it was in your family right down through to and your brother. my brother, right? yes. And that was just before Confederation. He, uh, he Well, no, that's the, um, what was Squire's government then, I oh, suppose. Oh, in the 19... Uh, Coker's government. Coker's When he left the lighthouse. In the 20s. Yeah, I don't know what year, and I mm -hmm. can't remember. So you were born in the lighthouse? I was born in the lighthouse, yes. That's what kept me so old. <laughs> Good fresh air down yeah. there, you know. Must be pretty stormy oh. here sometimes. Oh, yes, in the winter, you know. There's some. How big a family did your mother have? She had um, eight, nine children. And never lost any children over that That time. No, no. That's a terrible thing. I had a sister thing. one time. She was old. I can't remember, but I used to hear him joking about it. She fell in the well. <laughs> it would have fallen in the well than over that cliff. But I couldn't have been much water of it because they pulled her out and she didn't drown anyhow. Your mother must have kept <laughs> have to keep looking after yeah. you all the time. Well, we never seemed to go near the cliffs, you know, but she used to always warn us to keep away, you know. Because that's easily, oh, what, my. 300 feet, isn't it? I, I think about it now and the things that we used to do, and I, I couldn't think about it. I get nervous now if I think about it, you know, going near the cliff. We'd see uh, perhaps wild peas. I remember one time trying to get down the cleft way the cliff to pick some green, wild green peas. And that's a very <laughs> and I, stormy and it was, place. Oh my, wasn't it, you know, perpendicular? And I used to think, wow, how foolish was I to do that? Because if I'd only slip, I was gone. <laughs> now, what did you do in the wintertime? Your, your... Wintertime, well. You I certainly couldn't play it around there. No, it was so windy and cold. We just sort of sledge, you know, go out and play. Like would you Would you go to school there in the lighthouse? No, there's no school. Did your mother no. teach you? We didn't. No, in the winter, we had to go down to the lighthouse and stay there. <coughs> and then we had a house up in the harbor. And um, in the spring, then, we'd go and open the house. My eldest sister would keep house. 
we'd go to school. Because that's uh, the lighthouse is about what four miles. Oh yes, four. Oh yes, from the you couldn't side. do. Couldn't go. No. Oh. And you couldn't drive in the winter. Halfway to be banks of snow, piles of snow, and then a big couple of mile or mile of all gravel where the wind would blow the snow away. Yes. So you couldn't. There's no way getting down there. What sort of a Christmas would you have in the lighthouse? Do you have a good time? Yeah, we're all youngsters, we're all children, you know, playing around and Santa Claus. Oh, we believed there was a Santa Claus, you know. Did you have a around. Christmas tree out there? No, no trees then. No. Oh, you couldn't get a tree down in front of it. Exactly, that's very true. <laughs> rocks, your rocks. No trees in that no area. No trees. About a mile away, those scrub trees, that's all. That was Teresa Colburn born at Cape Bonavista Lighthouse in 1887. She sounds like a hoot. I, I'm sorry I never got a chance to meet her. We're going to move on to a different lighthouse now, a very storied lighthouse. This is part of an interview which was done with Cyril Myrick, who was not born in a lighthouse, but whose family tended the lighthouse at Cape Race. Cape Race is a point of land located at the southeastern tip of the Avalon Peninsula, just northwest of the most popular transatlantic shipping route. Its name is thought to come from the original Portuguese name for this cape, Rasso, meaning flat or low-lying. The cape appeared on early 16th century maps as Cabo Rasso. Its name may derive from a cape of the same name, located at the mouth of the Tagus River in Portugal. Here's Cyril Myrick talking about how old he was when he first arrived at the lighthouse at Cape Race. My name was Cyril Myrick. I was born in St. John's uh, in 1933. And after a couple of weeks, I went to Cape Race to join the rest of my family with my mother. And uh, I, I was advised that I, I made the last trip on the speeder on the track, on the, on the railway when I was taken off. They, they said they they cancelled or decommissioned the rail the rail going up there in 1932. So I suppose due to manual labour they didn't get it all up, you know, things uh, straightened out like they would today. So 1933, that's what they tell me. I was I was uh, brought up there on the speeder. Now, I don't know <laughs> what kind of a day it was, but I was brought up there and. Uh, and, uh, of course, lived happily ever after, I suppose you could say. And uh, I went to school up there, as uh, as did uh, all the children up there. At one point, there were 32 pupils in the school up there. And uh, there was, uh, I guess, between 8 and 10 families at, at that time. And uh, at one point, there was 85 people on the cave because uh, in the lighthouse and fog alarm, there was uh, eight light keepers, four for the, for the light and four for the fog alarm. You know, due to, they had to uh, keep up steam and shovel coal and everything in the fog alarm, so they had to, they had two ships, was laborious, I suppose, but now, you know, due to automation, one guy can do it, and and he can leave there for, for a whole day and still everything will operate because it's all automated. Uh, when the light was electrified in 1968, is the motor that was used then still like the now? The, uh, what they used to call that was the clock. 
has was the same system as an old an old clock, you know, the cog wheels and little wheels and small wheels and everything. And then the weight was the same as a as a cuckoo clock. You know, when you haul down on the on the weights of the cuckoo clock, the, the weight keeps keeps the wheels turning. Well, that that was the same system, but that's still there now. Still there, the handle, uh, you know, for for winding up the weights and everything is still there, and the the uh, electric motor is set on top of that, a quarter horsepower motor. Now uh, did did the work of, you know, of eight hundred pounds of weights, a quarter a quarter motor. But that's 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 a, a bulb now. It used to be uh, vaporized with a mantle like a. Aladdin lamp. Have you ever seen Aladdin lamp? It worked the same system, you know, the mantle. Well, same thing as a Coleman lantern. Now, I, I learned through the grapevine, and I, I've, I've heard it said before from from my father and, and other relatives that uh, my cousin, or dad's first cousin, Jim, my was an apprentice, he was between 15 and 16, uh, on Cape Race, and uh, he he was he was a, a learner, and uh, apparently he he was he was there that night the night the Titanic sank, and uh, I don't know the circumstances, but uh, it could be that the the two guys, seeing that he was fairly capable, left left the station probably to go over to the house to get a cup of tea. And while they were gone, he copied the message. That, that's what the speculation is. But it never came out in any inquiry or inquest. And it was like it was hushed up because it appears that, you know, the thing was so traumatic. You know, 1,500 people lost. And this station there, the only station that, that could be of benefit to them, and a, a, a non-licensed young person on duty. Where the where the, the so-called capable guys weren't there. Now that's that's the speculation. But uh, but I I've never I've never heard his name mentioned. Only in only in uh, uh, one piece of literature I I saw from Fortune Cove South on the wall, which indicates it must be a very traumatic time for the three operators on duty at Cape Race that night. But in other documentaries, it only mentions two, Gray and Goodwin. Now, who is the third one? That's a mystery, isn't it? And who doesn't love a good mystery? We're going to loop back around and finish as we started, listening to Barry Porter. In this clip, he talks about how he began as a lighthouse keeper and what he thinks about the future of lighthouse keeping. I became a lighthouse keeper in 1983. Uh, before that, I was a welder by trade, which uh, is a dirty trade, and I worked out west for a couple of years at it, and discovered I had missed the ocean and and Newfoundland, so I returned, and uh, a short time after that, I happened to apply to the Coast Guard. I, I heard about this federal job opening, and uh, I applied, and lucky enough, I... Uh, I uh, got a job with the Coast Guard. So what was your first job? My first job was uh, just a part-time light, light keeper on Exploits Island. Uh, I just went in for one month, 32 days. You go on for 32 days and you're off for 32 days. So that uh, I went there part-time, got my foot in the door, and the next spring I ended up going to 
Long Point Lighthouse for I believe four weeks and it ended up to be four years and uh, by then I was in the system. And then after that you went to? I went to, uh, I left Long Point, went to Bacalay, Ohio, which is uh, a small isolated island between Erie Neck and uh, Change Islands. So they had a two mile island with uh, just you and your co-worker and uh, the seagulls basically. And after that, I transferred to Exploits Island uh, for for about ten years. And Exploits was much better. There was a it was a resettled island, so there was like a hundred cabins in the, in the harbor. It was a three mile hike to get to the harbor, but uh, at least there was uh, other humans inside there. Uh, every light has got a different uh, a different flash, a different color scheme. Some lights flash every thirty seconds. Some or three flat exploits on, for example, at three flashes, and then it was an eclipse for uh, so many seconds and three flashes again, right? So, every light got a different uh, characteristic, right? And the foghorn as well. There's foghorns on, uh, on most lighthouses, and they have different timings, and that's all on the charts and in the books, right? Basically, uh, on, on the islands, you work, you're responsible basically for every second day. You'd work, you'd cover one day, and your, your co worker would cover the next day. You go on shift two o'clock in the morning. You do a walk through, check uh, check the horizons, see if there's any boats sinking, any flares or anything like that. Uh, go out, check the diesel generators because everything was generated power. You had three Lester diesels, one running and two on backup. Check the, make sure everything's working, no oil leaks. Make sure the main light is on. Record the weather conditions, and uh, you do that every four hours. You you are supposed to go and technically check the, the generators, the exhaust systems, and and the, the main aids at, at the light. And uh, <clears throat> during the later in the day, you'd, uh, you'd give a weather report to the nearest Coast Guard radio station. In the wintertime, you'd give the ice conditions if there was eight, eight tenths coverage in gray ice, two, two tenths in buoyed ice, and bergy pits, and growlers. You had to be a you had to be a weatherman and uh, a janitor, a tour guide, uh, jack of all trades, really. And then during the day later, you do whatever maintenance had to be done, any painting, any any you know general upkeep, right? So you it wasn't busy, you know. You always had something to do. You you know, I always said you had a week's work physically, but you'd spread it out and do it over 32 days just to keep your sanity and tried your different hobbies and your different skills, right? I, I done everything from, I didn't do crocheting, but I done every other tra- every <laughs> other craft there was. Well, there was lots of, you know, good moments, a couple of scary ones, uh, you know, involved in a few rescues, reporting flares or radio contact with a ship that's, or a boat that's missing, but uh, one particular one, we were at two o'clock in the morning with the spotlights keeping a 65-footer off the rocks uh, on Exploits Island, but... Uh, we got them safely into the harbor and secured for the night, and the next day they, they moved on, right? But, you know, those things, we record them, but uh, if there's no loss of life, you know, no one hears about, you know, uh, about uh, rescues or, or whatever, right? Like, I got this little, I always fought against automation. Uh, when I started in 83, there was 56 man lighthouses. I think we're down to about 20 now, 21, maybe 22, and, uh, you know, I always kicked uh, against it because uh, people in Ottawa who've never seen the ocean are making these calls, right, on cutbacks. But uh, if you ever experience 
a storm and a lighthouse, you'd uh, you'd wish there was lots of light, uh, more main light stations around. We are routinely giving out weather reports. People last saying, you know, you, you know, if somebody's leaving Lewisport in a in a 18 foot boat and the conditions in 20 miles in the bay south are fine, out uh, out 20 miles on the Atlantic, it could be, you know, a, a storm brewing, right? And you know, we we advise them to uh, stay back, come tomorrow, right? So you know that that happened. Well, most of them are automated now. It's uh, all downscaled. It's it's not so good coverage, personally. Uh, they got in newer and improved uh, equipment, the newer fancy lights and radios and all that. But uh, uh, you know, a computer chip can't replace a set of eyes scanning the horizon with a with a set of binoculars, in my opinion. The Long Point Light in Twillingate has attracted a few strange stories over the years. But the most curious involves an old mop. This common household object was kept at the base of the tower. It was not a kitchen mop, but an old tar mop, a long-handled mop with a round, brush-like head. It was apparently designed for tarring a roof, but it was never used for that purpose. When a new lightkeeper arrived at the light in 1980, he was told by one of the lightkeepers who had been there for a long time that this tar mop had always been there. The tar mop sat, resting on the bracket that supports the bottom part of the staircase. The reason why it was never removed from the premises was that for some reason it has a strange tendency to move around all by itself. According to reports, the mop was known to reverse its position on the bracket. One day it would be shoved in facing one way, and the next day, or two or three later, it would be shoved in facing the opposite direction. There was no explanation for who did it, and how it happened, or why. The mop had a mind of its own, and kept moving. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Living Heritage, all about lighthouses and lighthouse keepers. May you always have a guiding light to show you the way. <laughs> You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.